At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, Truly I tell you, I do not know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Well, thank you very much. It's lovely to be with you in your temporary surroundings. It's an exciting time, I'm sure, for you as a church as you start your building project. I remember we did that many years ago at Crubbers, and uh, it was actually a time, I think, not just of physical growth for our building, but spiritual growth for our congregation And I hope that you'll find that for yourselves too. Now, thank you to Liz. She's done my job for me. I'm just going to take a couple of minutes and sit down. Um, She did a far better job on this passage than I think I'm going to do. But um, her point was absolutely bang on about um, what this passage means. And with her, I have to say, when um, I think it was Andrew sent me the passage, I thought, what on earth am I going to say about this? And I was reminded of a poor preacher who at the end of his message said, Now remember, folks, are you going to stay awake with the five wise virgins or sleep with the five foolish? Um, Which was an unfortunate faux pas. I'm going to try and avoid that one today myself. Um, But maybe you could have your Bibles open, please, at um, Matthew 25. Um, There's no doubt in my own mind that as a rule, the parables of Jesus, as we have them related to us in the Gospels, are actually amongst some of the hardest um, parts of Scripture to understand. And uh, at first sight, you can gloss over them quickly, but when you start to dig into them, as I think you'll probably find with this parable, it raises some questions. And uh, one of the things, and this was a point that I think Liz made really well, is that um, when you're dealing with parables, there's a danger to over-interpret them. Normally, the Lord Jesus is wanting to make just one point. And the important thing is to get that point and then perhaps not dig too deeply or try to over-interpret what the various symbols in the parables might be now just before we look at this particular parable and i'm sure you've done this already but it will help me if it won't help you just to contextualize um, where we're at with this particular passage this appears in um, a couple of chapters matthew 24 and 25 that we usually refer to as the olivet discourse The Lord Jesus is on the Mount of Olives and he's giving his disciples um, 
a briefing session. They're looking out over Jerusalem. And first of all, you'll see at the beginning of Matthew 24, Jesus warns them that one day the temple is going to be destroyed. And as they're having this discussion, it leads to some questions on the part of the disciples. And the first thing they want to know is, well, when is that going to happen? Certainly for Jews, it was unthinkable that God's temple, the place where they considered to be God's dwelling place on earth, was going to be destroyed. But also they ask, and when will your coming be, or what will the signs of your coming be at the end of the age? Now, there's a bit of debate as to whether it was one question or two questions, but I don't think that matters too much because what we find in Matthew is that largely Matthew deals, particularly in Matthew 24, with the signs of the Lord's coming. Um, Luke, in his account of this particular discourse, seems to focus more on the earlier part of the question, which is when is the temple going to be destroyed? But as Jesus answers this question when we get into the latter part of chapter 24 and chapter 25 the lord moves from signs and he wants to give his disciples some warnings and that's the context in which this particular um uh, parable arises now it's worth thinking about our lord's coming philosophically The problem is actually not with his second coming, but rather with his first coming. If you sort out his first coming, actually his second coming is pretty easy to accept and understand. Peter says in his first epistle, listen to this. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has, as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters also, the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. And I think those verses sum up the general attitude of our world today. One of the things that fascinates me is when I was a boy, if you'd gone out into the street and asked anybody, what's the rapture? Which is, it's actually a Latin um, word that's transliterated into English for our Lord's coming that appears in 1 Thessalonians. But when I was a boy, if you'd gone out into the street and asked that, nobody would have had a clue what you were talking about. Now, The Simpsons, I don't know if you're aware of it, has a cartoon to mock the rapture. And I was intrigued a little while ago, next to my office, they were building the new St. James's Centre, and because we were watching it for years and years, the builders said, look, if you want, you can come and have a look round. And uh, we all put on hard hats and uh, had a wander around. It was fascinating to see how they were building this building. And uh, we had our photographs taken and there was one of me standing with my hard hat on and all my kit on. And they put it round the office and said there'll be a prize for the person who has the funniest caption of Eric standing with his hard hat on. 
And I was intrigued because one of the captions that somebody submitted, by the way, who was not a Christian, far from it in the office, one of the captions was, I've got this on just in case the rapture happens. Now, the very fact that that was there, and it went round the staff in the office, anticipating that they would understand what the joke was, intrigued me. Because it was not like that when I was a boy. Nobody would have had a clue. What, what are they talking about? And yet we do live in a day where there are many scoffers. Where are the, where's the promise of his coming? And Peter reminds his readers that um, everything has not continued just like that in the world's history. But he reminds them of Noah's flood and the Genesis flood. Of course, if you believe that today, then not only are you daft, you're a danger to society. But it intrigues me, that's where we are in our culture. Where is the promise of his coming? Now, it's also worth remembering where, or looking at where we are in context of this passage, because there are really three parables. The one that, pre, uh, that, that, that precedes this one, I'm sure you've looked at already, but it was about a servant. And the comparison there was really between a faithful servant and a wicked servant. You'll no doubt have looked at that already. So the idea was, in that particular parable, look, the master of the house is going to go away and he's going to leave you in charge of his goods. And the wicked one says, oh, well, I've no idea when he's going to come back. In fact, he's not going to come back for ages, so I'm just going to live the life of Riley and spoil his goods. And there's a degree of wickedness about that that the Lord Jesus explains in that particular parable. Now, in this parable, I think the comparator is slightly different. It wasn't deliberate wickedness. It's more foolishness versus wisdom. I think that's what we're faced with here. In the first parable, the warning was, look, there are some people who will quite deliberately say, ah, he's not coming back, or I will do as I please. And then, of course, in that parable, the master returns. So it's a, comparis- a comparator between, fully, uh, between, um, b- between faithfulness and wickedness. But I want to suggest to you that this parable compares foolishness. This wasn't something that was done deliberately and wisdom. Now, we need to do a little bit of cultural investigation because here we're at a Jewish wedding in this particular parable. And you need to understand a little bit of what was going on here. And a Jewish wedding had a number of steps. It was quite a long and detailed process. And step number one was the betrothal. And this was a binding agreement that was made between the two families for this couple and they were going to get married. There would be the terms for the dowry and all of that. And once that betrothal and the agreement was in place, the groom went back to his father's house. And a period would elapse. It could be weeks. It could be months. It could be years. And the bride, the bridegroom was going to then go to her house and take her back to his father's house. That was step two of the process there was a transfer of the bride to the bridegroom's father's home and quite often apparently it was jewish tradition that that would happen at night and when it happened all the 
bride's friends would get together, there'd be torches, there'd be dancing, there'd be celebration, and they would go from one home to the other. And then as they entered the father's house, the, the, the groom's father's house, there would be a big celebration. Friends and family were there and they'd have a big party that could go on. Sometimes it was a couple of days, sometimes it was a week, sometimes it was a couple of weeks. And then as part of that process, there would be a wedding ceremony. And then the marriage would be finally um, consummated. Now between steps one and two... Remember, that's the betrothal and the time when the groom comes from his father's house to meet his bride. There was an indeterminate period. And nobody knew when the bridegroom was going to arrive. And that's the scene that Jesus is setting for us here. Now, if we'd been Jews, we'd have been very familiar with what was going on here. Um, But we need, in our culture, to have it explained so the bride and, and, and groom are being taken in this story from the bride's house to the father's home, to the groom's father's home, and there's to be huge celebration. And of course, what we find is that some of the bride's friends are um, without the necessary oil, the lamp, the light that they need to do the procession between the two homes. And they go off looking for the oil and by the time they get it and arrive at the bridegroom's house, the party's begun, the door is closed and they can't get in. Now that's the parable, that's the story. Now the question then of course arises, what's this got to do with us? What is Jesus telling his disciples and indeed telling us? Now I suppose the first question is, Who are the virgins? Who are these young women that are waiting there as friends of the bride? And there's a bit of debate about all of these things because normally we think of the church as the bride of Christ. But by far and away, the majority of scholars take the view and commentators take the view that the ten young women here represent the church. The bride isn't mentioned, and here we have a different symbolism from the church. We, if you like, are the ten young women that are waiting for this wedding ceremony. Now, of course, we have no difficulty identifying with the wise ones. The question really arises, what about the foolish ones? And that's maybe a more difficult issue, and we'll look at that in a moment. The next question then becomes, well, what about the oil and the lamps? And there's a fair bit of debate about that, let me tell you. Of course, oil very often represents the Holy Spirit. I'm going to suggest, however, that particularly in Matthew's Gospel, the oil or the light that burns from the oil, which is the important thing, is really our good works. If you like the manifestation of, of our Christian lives in the world. What does Matthew write, or what does Matthew record Jesus having said in the Sermon of the Mount? Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works 
and praise your Father in heaven. Now, I think just because that's the way Matthew tends to use the issue of light, and light, it seems to me here, is more the issue in the parable, then I think that's what he's talking about. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. And you'll see why I think that and why that underlines the warning that Jesus is bringing to us. So the parable ends with the five foolish virgins running around to find oil at the last minute, but it's too late and they're excluded from the party. Now, I think we know, remember, Jesus is talking about the time when he returns. And as Liz quite rightly said this morning, the purpose of this parable is to say something about being prepared. But here, Jesus, I would suggest to you, is not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to believers. He's talking to his disciples. And he's warning us not to be one of the foolish, but to be one of the wise. Now, in John's epistle, he says something similar. Let, it, let me read it to you. John 1 John 2.18, he says, And now, dear children, so who's he talking to? Believers or unbelievers? Now, dear children, he's talking to those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus. He says this, Abide in him. And in fact, that's what the whole epistle is about, abiding in the Lord Jesus. But he says, abide in him, watch this, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Now, it's important we remember, he is writing to believers and Jesus is talking to his disciples. So let me underline this. This is not a salvation issue. It's not that you can lose your salvation. It's an issue of shame. Or let me put it this way. It's an issue about rewards. And in fact, next week, that's exactly what the parable is about. But we'll leave others to deal with that. Now, what does Paul say? Listen to this. We make it our goal to please him. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Whether at home in the body, in other words, where we are now, or away from it. In other words, when we leave this body and we see the Lord Jesus in heaven, we want to please him here and we want to please him there. He says, and why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. Now, this is not the great white, judge, great white throne judgment that we read about in the book of Revelation where everybody is judged. This is a judgment for you and me. And the judgment that's referred to here, the judgment seat, is, is in Greek, the bima seat. You can check it out if you want. You'll see the word bima there. And the bima seat was a place where the athletes of the day received their laurels if you like, received their medals, received their gold medals. It was a place where they were rewarded for effort. Now notice Paul again, it's not a salvation issue, it's a reward verse. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. Now I want to stress that, listen to me, our salvation can never be lost 
but our rewards can. And I think what Jesus is warning us about here is that there is much that can be lost by you and me when he comes again. And John says the key to it is to abide in him. And we'll look at that just as we conclude. I think there's a couple of things conclude from this. First of all, it's possible as a Christian not to live a life that God is happy with. And we need to challenge all our hearts and ask ourselves, if he was to come back today, would I be ashamed of the way I'm living? I think the second point is this. The bridegroom, for those of us who believe, has not yet come. So there's time to do something about it. It's not too late. Jesus is saying, be prepared. So he says, let's put this right. Now, of course, the next question is, what about the five foolish young women that are there? Because what happens to them, they don't get into the party. They don't get into the celebration. And Jesus says to them, look at verse 12, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. And that's one of the difficult part, because that sounds like these are people who are not believers, who are not Christians. And the key to this, I think, the key to the understanding of this is the word for know. And it's a word in Greek, it's the word oida. Now it's translated, let me give you another place where it occurs in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 5.13 Now we ask you brothers to oida those who work hard amongst you. And if you look at how that's translated, it's respect It's not the word no, so we have it translated in our Bibles. Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you or to give approval to something. That's the idea that undergirds this word. In fact, it's knowledge that comes about by the consideration of information about something or someone is how the word is used. So I think we could translate this and perhaps better understand it that the people in the, the, or the bridegroom or others who are controlling the entrance to this party say, I tell you the truth, I, I don't approve of you. You're going to be ashamed at his coming. And I think that's a better understanding of what the text means. Now the question then, of course, for us is, well, how do I prepare for this coming? Do I have to be running around and doing lots of good works? Because you've said, Eric, the light, remember what Matthew said, let your light shine before men so they'll see your good works. But I think John gives us the focus in John 1.28. He says, abide in Christ, abide in him. And you will not be ashamed at its coming. Now the question then becomes, what does it mean to abide? And could I suggest this? It's much more to do with relationships than works. See, I often put it this way. Um, back home, I have left my wife this morning. She's not feeling too well. And Leslie and I have a relationship which essentially is based on love. 
And there's nothing I would want to do that would really hurt her. Now, don't get me wrong. We don't have the perfect marriage, but you understand what I mean. In a marriage relationship, what's got to motivate the things we do, the things we say, and how we conduct ourselves with each other is to do with our love for each other. And what we do for each other flows from that. And I think when John says, abide in him, he's saying, listen, maintain that close, intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus, and you will not be ashamed when he comes. That's the key to it. And very often as believers, we put the cart before the horse and we think, I've got to be doing this, I've got to be doing that, I've got to be doing the other. If you live the Christian life like that, let me tell you, you will never survive. You know, in my marriage, if it had been about, right, Leslie, I've, I've got to do something good for you today, I've got to do, you know, three good things a day and that will give us a happy marriage. You'd have looked at me and thinking, that's not really what I'm looking for, Eric. I'm looking for much more intimacy than that. I want you to love me freely. And indeed, as far as I'm concerned, Leslie does lots of things. She's very merciful. But she does it because of our relationship of love. That's the key. Love produces the light. Love produces the works. Abide in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him. At his coming. You know, I remember many, many years ago, um, my mother and father went off. Um, in fact, I may have told this story before because I have told it elsewhere, but um, they went off on holiday to America. And I think I was, I think I was about 18 or 19 and my sister was 14. So I was left in charge of the house. And they went away for three weeks. And... Um, we thought we'd be fine on our own. But after about a week, we were beginning to miss mum and dad. And uh, I remember when we went to meet them at Edinburgh Airport. And my sister was standing beside me. I was there. I'd driven down and we had the car parked and we were waiting for them to appear with their cases. And uh, my sister suddenly, I could hear her sniffing. And I looked around and the tears were running down her face and then I got this huge lump in my throat and I thought I'm getting emotional as well and uh, we saw my father's bald head coming through the crowd there at the airport and we met them and we're not I wouldn't say overly demonstrative as a family but the next thing I'm got my arms around my father and I'm sort of getting a bit emotional and Anne's in a terrible state. My father's thinking we've burnt the house down <laughs> or something. You know, what disaster has befallen us or has the hamster died or something? What's, what in there's wrong? And it was just because of that relationship of love and we'd missed them and we were just so glad to have them back again and be with them. And I think that's what it means to be not ashamed at is coming you know i think the lord jesus is setting out a warning for us all here isn't he he's saying you know it's possible to live the christian life and actually not really be ready i remember when i was a boy i really got into bible prophecy and all the rest of it it was it was a bit crazy to be honest with you but 
there was a lot of books around then in those days and we you know people were predicting look what's happening in Israel and the end of the world is nigh and all the rest of it and I got into it in a big way and I remember one night I was lying in bed and I started to dream and of course if you've been reading this stuff before you go to bed suddenly the, the I, I, in my dream the Lord had come and I was ashamed I wasn't ready and I kind of jumped out of bed and realized in my own mind why did I why in my dream was that was I like that I was reading all about it but I didn't really want the Lord to come back because there was something I knew that wasn't quite right and I think when we examine our lives isn't it the case that God just puts his finger on something and says I want you to deal with that you know you don't need a long sermon it's just deep down you know there's something in my life if the Lord was to come back today I know I wouldn't be ready because and sometimes God just puts his finger on that thing and the question I suppose for us all me too is what am I going to do about that how am I going to put that right that if he were to come today I wouldn't be ashamed you know, there's an old song that um, we used to sing. Probably now it would be considered a bit twee. But um, the chorus went like this. The Christ I love is coming soon. It may be morning, night, or noon. My lamps are lit. I'll watch and pray. It may be today. It may be today. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this warning from the lips of our Lord Jesus that we might never know just that moment. In fact, we don't know the moment when you'll come. And Lord, we pray as we heard with the children this morning and as we thought this morning around your word, Lord, that we might be prepared, that we might not be ashamed at your coming. Lord, help us all this morning to examine our hearts and to ask ourselves, what is it that I need to put right that I won't be ashamed, Lord, if you were to come today? Lord, may the resounding response of all our hearts and lives be even so, Lord Jesus, come. Lord, prepare our hearts so, Lord, that when that great day comes, you will be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And we will receive that great reward from your own dear hand. Lord, bless your word to our hearts for your sake and for the sake of the glory of your dear son. Amen.